0: Now we've been studying in our last session about true Israel. There are two Israels, there's a genuine Israel and there's a counterfeit Israel. The counterfeit Israel is only ethnic Israel. The genuine Israel is composed of those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now how many folds does God have? We studied that God has only one fold and how many shepherds? One shepherd and that shepherd is? Jesus Christ. How many Israels does God have? He has only one true Israel. Now we also want to notice that God has only one body, Christ has only one body composed of Jews and Gentiles, not two mutually separable peoples. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 18. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 18. And here we're going to find that Jesus Christ has one body not many bodies one body it says there but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off who are those who were once far off the Gentiles you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were afar off, that is the Gentiles, and those who were near. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So how many bodies does Jesus have? Jesus has one body, and it's composed of what? Jews and Gentiles. Are they both Jews, spiritually speaking? They're both Jews. They're one people they're God's true Israel because they have embraced Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now notice also on this same point that Jesus has only one body, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1st Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. Once again the same idea. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves are free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. Do you notice the oneness here? God has only one people, He doesn't have two mutually separable peoples, one outside of Christ and one in Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. And then Colossians 1 verse 18 and verse 24 speaking about Jesus that says, He is the head of the body, and what is the body? The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of His body which is the church. So how many bodies does Jesus have? He has one body, folks. He doesn't have a Jewish body and a Gentile body. He has united Jew and Gentile in one body in Himself. Furthermore, there's only one city. There's not an earthly city for the literal Jews and a heavenly city for the the church. There's one city for both. How do you know that? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. We noticed this in a previous lecture. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So you have the New Jerusalem. And I want you to notice that the New Jerusalem has two characteristics that I want to underline regarding what we're talking about now. Revelation 21 and verse 12. This is the New Jerusalem. We just read it. It says there also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and the twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Is Israel represented in the Holy City? Yes it is. The gates have the names of the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes. What about God's people from New Testament times? Are they also represented in the city? Absolutely. Notice Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14. It says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So you have there New Testament and Old Testament Israel, and it is the city of the Lamb. It's not a Jewish city, it is the city of the Lamb. Now notice Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10, and then we'll read verses 13 through 16. Even the Old Testament saints, listen carefully, even the Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob looked forward to the heavenly New Jerusalem. They knew that the earthly Jerusalem was only a small scale type of a far greater heavenly reality. And they knew that the earthly sanctuary was an earthly scale model Of the greater and real sanctuary in heaven. Let's notice what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, this is speaking of Abraham, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now what city did Abraham wait for? Listen to this. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Did Abraham look forward to the earthly city of Jerusalem? And this is Old Testament, folks. He's looking towards the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Verse 13, it gives a list of some of the heroes of faith. And then it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Did they consider Canaan a homeland? No, they were seeking a homeland. What was that homeland? Let's continue reading. And truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, Therefore God is not ashamed to be to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Did the Old Testament saints look forward to the heavenly city? So what was the, the literal Jerusalem on earth? A little scale model, a little sample, a literal sample of the heavenly city. Conclusion: The city is composed of all the redeemed from all ages, because the names of the twelve tribes are on the gates and the names of the twelve apostles are on the foundations. God does not have two separate plans for two mutually exclusive peoples, He has one city for all of His people. We also noticed that God has only one woman, Christ has only one wife. If He has two mutually, mutually separable peoples then Jesus would be a bigamist. He has only one bride, His faithful people from all ages. Notice Revelation chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 and then verses 5 and 6. Verses 1 and 2 are describing the Old Testament church, verses 5 and 6 are describing the New Testament church. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, representing the church, right? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, she bore a male child, we are in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and His throne. So what does this woman represent that we just read about, from whom the child is born? It represents the church, which church? It's the Old Testament church, because Jesus was born from the Old Testament church, right? But let me ask you, do you have the same woman representing the New Testament church? Absolutely, because it says in verse 6, The woman fled into the wilderness, the same woman, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And so how many women does God have? He has one woman composed of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints composed of people who lived in the Old Testament period, and who live in the New Testament period. And Ellen White, we read this statement before, in Acts of the Apostles, page 19 says, As in the Old Testament the twelve patriarchs stood as representatives of Israel, so the twelve apostles stand as representatives of the Gospel Church. So God has only one woman represented as true people from all ages. In Romans 11 we have one tree that represents all of God's people, now let's notice this in the handout that you have. The kingdom of Christ is illustrated by one only one olive tree that bears good fruit. In Romans 11 the olive tree has several different types of branches, but they all belong to the same tree. There are natural branches, who are those? The Jews the literal Jews. There are natural branches that are retained in the tree. Why are they retained in the tree? Because they accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. There are natural branches that are cut off. Who are those? Those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. There are natural branches that are grafted in once again into the tree. What does that represent? It represents the literal Jews who rejected Jesus and then what? Accepted Him. That's like Saul of Tarsus for example. There are wild olive branches that are grafted into the tree. Who are those wild olive branches? They are the Gentiles who are grafted into God's church. There are also wild olive branches that can potentially be cut off from the tree. Who are those? Gentiles who abandoned their relationship with Jesus. And finally, there is Uh, there are those branches that are grafted in once again to the tree, wild olive branches that are grafted in, that represents Gentiles who perhaps forsook Christ and then they come back again. So how many trees do we have? We have one tree composed of people of all types, we don't have two different trees, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. The key is in verses 20 and 23, where we are told that to be part of the tree means to believe in Jesus. To be cut off from the tree means to reject Jesus. The root and the trunk of the tree symbolize Jesus. If we are connected to the trunk and the root, we will bear fruit. And this is a rather long passage, Um, let's just go ahead and read it so that you can catch the picture. Beginning in verse 17 the Apostle Paul says, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, he's writing to the Gentiles, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. Are you seeing the reason why they were broken off? Unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Are you catching the picture? For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature, because this is a Jewish tree, so when the when the wild branches are grafted into the Jewish tree they they become Jewish branches, are you with me or not. Verse 24, for if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. When it says all Israel will be saved, in the context who is all Israel? All Israel are the natural branches and the wild olive branches, all together in the same tree. Are you with me or not? And then it says, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. So, how many trees does God have? One, one tree. Do you see that the oneness here in all of these uh, illustrations? There's only going to be one banquet table. There's not going to be one banquet table for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. By the way, who's going to serve us? You know that this is such an awesome thought. Jesus is going to be the waiter. And we're gonna sit and we're gonna have the menu, (laughs) and they say I'll take some pomegranates Lord, and some almonds, and please bring some figs too. We are going to be served by Jesus, unbelievable! The, the, The Lord, the Master who sits at the right hand of God, we will be guests, we'll sit at the table, and Jesus Himself will come with the napkin over His arm, I'm dramatizing for effect, <laughs> and He will serve us, and He will serve Jews and Gentiles at the same table. Notice what we find here in Matthew chapter 8 verses 11 and 12, Matthew chapter 8 verses 11 and 12, incidentally this comes immediately after Jesus has healed the servant of the, Jewish centu- of, of the Roman centurion, he was a Gentile right? So Jesus has just healed the servant of of this Roman centurion, this Gentile centurion, and then Jesus speaks these words. And I say to you that many will come from east and west, who are those who come from east and west? The Gentiles. And sit down, and incidentally if you read the parallel passage in Luke 22 verse 30 it says, and will sit down at my table. Jesus is speaking they will sit down at my table with Abraham Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven but the sons of the kingdom who are the sons of the kingdom the literal Jewish nation who did not accept Christ but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Wow so how many tables does God have Does Christ have He's got one table, is it only going to be Jews at that table? Well Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are going to be at that table, but there are going to be people who come from the east and the west, and the parallel passage in Luke says that they will come from the south and the north as well, they'll come from the four directions of the compass. When Jesus comes it says in Matthew chapter 24 that He will send forth His angels and they shall pick up His people from the four corners of the earth they're not all going to be Jews that will be picked up, it will be all of God's people all over the world that will be picked up. There is only one spiritual temple. Notice Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22, this myth that God has two mutually separable peoples and that that these prophecies are going to be fulfilled literally with the literal Jews when the church is in heaven, it is a tremendous counterfeit It is a Christless interpretation of Bible prophecy, and we need to tell the world that prophecy is fulfilled only in Christ Jesus, it is not fulfilled in the Jewish nation, unless they believe in Jesus Christ. One spiritual temple Ephesians 2 19 to 22, the Apostle Paul says, and he's writing to Gentiles, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You have all the New Testament there? Prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament. But who is the chief cornerstone? It says the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Who is the chief cornerstone of the spiritual temple of the church? Jesus. Are the foundations of the church based on the Old and the New Testament, the apostles and the prophets? Absolutely, but He has only one temple, one church, and so it says in verse 21, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Folks this has profound implications. The temple in which the Antichrist sits is not the literal Jerusalem temple but rather the spiritual temple, the church. How many songs will God's people sing? Well the Jews will sing the song of Moses and we will sing the song of the Lamb, right? Uh-uh, only one song. Notice what we find in Revelation chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. Revelation chapter 15 Verses 3 and 4, it says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. What is this song that is going to be sung by the redeemed? The song of Moses, that's the Old Testament, and the Lamb, the New Testament. And so God's people are going to sing one song. It's not that the Jews are going to sing one song and those who have been converted to Christ are going to sing another song. No, they both sing the same song. Furthermore, we only have one Father. The redeemed have only one Father, the Father of Jesus Christ. Those who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord become brothers and sisters of Jesus, and because they are brothers and sisters of Jesus, they are also sons and daughters of God. Notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 on this point. For you are all sons of God, how do we become sons of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Can we call ourselves sons of God directly by a relationship with, with God the Father? No, we have to come through Jesus. We have to become His brothers and His sisters. John 1, verses 12 and 13, John 1 verses 12 and 13. It tells us that we become brothers and sisters of Jesus as a result of being sons and daughters of God. Notice these verses, but as many as received Him as received whom? As received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So, who are the children of God? Those who received Jesus. So it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of whom? They were born of God. And so John 14 verse 6 says, Jesus is speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Incidentally, there's also only one high priest with one breastplate. Do you see all the oneness that we have here? See, Aaron the high priest in Israel had a breastplate with twelve stones, the same twelve stars on the crown of the woman. But Jesus also has the twelve stones, but for Jesus the twelve stones represent both Old Testament Israel and New Testament Israel. He doesn't have two breastplates, he has one breastplate, he has all of his people from all dispensations very close to his heart. So what are the conclusions that we can reach? Preachers today, non-adventist preachers believe just as Saul of Tarsus did before his conversion. You say what? Absolutely! They jump from the Old Testament to the end times and totally bypass Jesus. They say that God chose literal Israel unconditionally and unrevocably and irrevocably. And that all the promises that God made to literal Israel must be fulfilled with literal Israel in literal Jerusalem, in the literal temple, with reestablished literal sacrifices, with a literal personal antichrist sitting in the literal temple for a literal three and a half years. Literal enemies will come from the literal north and the literal east, wielding literal weapons to wage literal war against literal Jerusalem, and all of this outside of Christ. This is not a Christ-centered interpretation of prophecy, this is false prophecy. Do you think folks that if Protestants understood this that people like Tony Palmer would want to have any relationship with the Roman Catholic Church? Are you kidding? The reason why Protestants want to join Catholics today is because they've lost the prophetic scenario, they've lost the true interpretation of prophecy, they have lost historicism they have lost the method that would show them that the papacy is the power that sits in the temple of God. That the papacy changed the Sabbath to Sunday. They didn't really change it but they attempted to change the Sabbath to Sunday. They would see that this is the power that sits in the temple of God and they would understand that the nation that is going to help the papacy recover its power, that is going to make an image of the papacy in the sense of joining church and state is none less than the United States of America. But instead of looking at prophecy from the perspective that we are studying here, they focus their eyes on the Muslims. They say the enemy are the Muslims, radical Islam. They say that is the enemy, and we even have some Adventists who are saying that. There's no place in the spirit of prophecy where Ellen White attributes any role to Islam in the last days. Clearly the Bible and the spirit of prophecy tell us that the enemies will be the political powers of the world, the civil powers of the world that are influenced by the papacy and apostate Protestantism to persecute God's people. It will be a spiritual war over worship, the law and the Sabbath. And this prophetic scenario hides everything so that people can't see it. So who's going to tell the world about it? Do you understand now the purpose of the loud cry? The loud cry is to proclaim this that we're studying in this class. Calling people out of Babylon and telling people Babylon is fallen, it's full of demons. Who wants to stay in a system that is full of demons? And I know I'm being explicit and direct, but it's the truth. And I say it not to be unkind, but because Only the truth will make us free, only the truth will lead us to come out to walk with Jesus and to know what the true issues are in the interpretation of Bible prophecy. Let me read you a couple of statements here from the spirit of prophecy on Jerusalem. You know there's people in the world that say I would like to travel to the Holy Land. Now don't misunderstand me, I believe that there's a place to take trips to the Holy Land. I'll be explicit and you say well you're uh, you're speaking contrary to Ellen G. White then. I don't think so, because what Ellen White is describing and I'm going to read it in a moment is people who think that they can be closer to Jesus by going to Israel, because there's like some, some uh, influence that is still there. And so if I go this, this uh, uh, Christ somehow is going to ooze into me and I'm going to have a deeper spiritual experience. If you're going for that reason you're contradicting the spiritual prophecy, but you, if you're going for educational purposes, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to the Holy Land. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now let me read these two statements from Ellen White which are very interesting. Whereas everybody today is talking about going to the Holy Land, and Israel is still the Holy Land. I watch these programs on television, they say you know we're taking these tours to the Holy Land and you'll feel closer to Jesus in the Holy Land. Well let's see what Ellen White had to say about this. Review and Herald, February 25, 1896, this is page 24 of your syllabus. Page 24 of your syllabus, there are two statements there. And I'll just wait a moment until you're able to retrieve that page because these are powerful statements. Review and Herald, February 25, 1896, Ellen White states, Do not seek to go back to the land where Christ's feet trod ages ago. Christ says, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We can know far more of Christ by following Him step by step in the work of redemption, seeking the lost and the perishing, than by journeying to old Jerusalem. Christ has taken His people into His church, He has swept away every ceremony of the ancient type. Yes some people say, well you still have to celebrate the feasts. Here it says that He swept away every ceremony, not only the sacrifices, every ceremony. He has given no liberty to restore these rites or to substitute anything that will recall the old literal sacrifices. The Lord requires of His people spiritual sacrifices alone. Everything pertaining to His worship is placed under the superintendence of His Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Father would not send the Holy Spirit in His name to teach His disciples all things. Excuse me. Jesus said that the Father would send the Holy Spirit in His name to teach His disciples all things and to bring all things unto their remembrance. That He said unto them, and now notice what she says The curse rests upon Jerusalem. Wow. The what? the curse rests upon Jerusalem. The Lord has obliterated those things which men would worship in and about Jerusalem. See it's talking about worshiping these things. Yet many hold in reverence the literal objects in Palestine, while they neglect to behold Jesus as their advocate in the heaven of heavens. Is that clear? You will not be closer to Jesus by going to Israel, In fact, Ellen White says that the land is under the curse. I went to Israel many, many years ago and I was blessed because it helps you visualize the places that are mentioned in Scripture, it makes them really come alive. But I didn't go there and think when I was crossing the Sea of Galilee I didn't say well you know maybe the presence of Jesus is still here. And I didn't go because I thought I was going to have a closer walk with the Lord by being in Israel. Because Jesus said, Your house is left unto you desolate. That is a desolate land. Now, notice the second statement. This second statement is longer, it comes from Review and Herald, June 9, 1896. Same year. She says, How many there are who feel that it would be a good thing? To tread the soil of old Jerusalem. And that, now notice, and that their faith would be greatly strengthened by visiting the scenes of the Savior's life and death. But old Jerusalem will never be a sacred place until it is cleansed by the refining fire from heaven. The darkest blot of guilt rests upon the city that refused the light of Christ. Do we want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? We need not seek out the paths in Nazareth, Bethany and Jerusalem. We shall find the footprints of Jesus by the the sickbed, by the side of the suffering humanity, in the hovels of the poverty stricken and distressed. We may walk in these footsteps comforting the suffering, speaking words of hope and comfort to the despondent, doing as Jesus did when He was upon the earth, we shall walk in His blessed steps. Jesus said, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. When the sin-cursed earth is purified from every stain of sin, when the Mount of Olives is rent asunder and becomes an immense plain, when the holy city of God descends upon it, the land that is now called the Holy Land will indeed become holy. <laughs> I love that. But God's cause and work will not be advanced by making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. The curse of God is upon Jerusalem for the rejection and crucifixion of His only begotten Son. But God will cleanse away the vile blot. The prophet says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away and the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the throne saying, Behold the tabernacle of God is with men, and He shall dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. The first things are passed away. And he that sitteth on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. What makes a place holy? The presence of God, the presence of of Christ. So where is Christ present? Where is Christ present today? Is He present here? He's not present here? Is He present here? Is He present in your heart? Will He be present at prayer meeting? Is He present in every church where Jesus is worshiped? Sure, absolutely. So let me ask you, where is the Holy Land? The Holy Land is where Jesus is and Jesus is where two or three are gathered in His name. So, you don't have to go to Israel, to the Holy Land, to see the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy is fulfilled all over the world where there are people who confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's simple, it's not complicated. And it is Christ centered. Now, we have about 21 minutes left. So, let's go to our addendum. The addendum. The significance of the stoning of Stephen. And we'll have to finish this in our session uh, tomorrow morning, our first session tomorrow morning. Uh, So I hope that we'll arrive here bright and early. What time? No, 8.30, because we want to start at (laughs) 9. So let's let's arrive uh, early tomorrow so that we can finish this material on the stoning of Stephen, and then we're going to go to our next principle Uh, we're going to leave behind the principle of uh, Israel and prophecy. Um, You know I debated on whether to do Ishmael and Isaac or the the other material that you're going to fill in the blanks, I might still change my mind but we're a little bit behind, we'll see. But we will finish this document on the stoning of Stephen Lord willing tomorrow morning. Now let's begin at the top, did probation for the for the Jewish nation end in 31 AD when Jesus was crucified? That's the question that we want to ask. When did the door of probation close for the corporate Jewish nation? Adventists have always taught that it was with the stoning of Stephen in 34 AD. But why do we choose 34 AD as the ending point of the 70 week prophecy? Didn't Jesus say that probation closed when He left the temple for the last time in the middle of the last week? Didn't He say your house is left unto you desolate? It would seem so. However, several things must be taken into consideration. First, in the prophecy of Daniel 9, God promised Israel 70 full weeks of probation. Did He not? Absolutely. So would 31 A.D. be 70 full weeks of probation? No. If their probation ended in the year 31 A.D., Then they did not get the full seventy weeks as God had promised. More than once during His ministry Jesus stated that He was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, His mission was limited to the Jewish nation because they had been allotted seventy weeks of probation. Are you understanding that point? Jesus was not being exclusive, Jesus was simply saying the seventy weeks we gave to the Jewish nation, therefore I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At first sight Christ's statement about the lost sheep appears to be a rather calloused statement, but upon closer scrutiny we can understand what Jesus meant. His central mission involved only the Jews at this point because probationary time had not ended for the Jewish nation because the 70 weeks had not come to their conclusion. Though the Jews cried out at his his trial, we have no king but Caesar, and his blood be upon us and our children, and release unto us Barabbas. Probation did not close for the corporate Jewish nation at that time. After the ascension Peter explained that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God in order to give repentance unto Israel. So did probation close when Jesus was crucified? No, because Peter says that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God to give repentance to Israel. How could He give repentance to Israel if the door of probation for them had closed? Significantly in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts the gospel was preached only to the Jews. It was not until chapter 10 after the stoning of Stephen that the gospel was preached to the Gentiles. This indicates that the door of mercy was still open to the Jewish nation even after the ascension of Jesus. Are you understanding that point? Now in Matthew 23 and verses 32 to 38 we find further evidence that probation did not close for the Jewish nation when Jesus was crucified. In these verses Jesus reached the climax of his indictment against the Jewish leaders. In verses 34 to 36 which we read a while ago, Jesus stated, and this is just a few days before His death, two or three days before His death. Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. So is Jesus saying He's going to send messengers to Israel still after His crucifixion? Yes, some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And then only after that we find that on you may come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Assuredly I say to you all these things will come upon this generation. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm going to send you what? I'm going to send you prophets, I'm going to send you wise men, I'm going to send you scribes and I'll tell you what you're going to do to them. You are going to kill and crucify some, you're going to scourge others and you're going to persecute others from city to city and only then does Jesus say when you do that then all of the blood will come upon this generation. Are you following me or not? So was the door of probation still open even after the crucifixion? Yes it was. Now don't miss the point of this passage. Even though these words were spoken by Jesus three days before His crucifixion He still promised to send the verbs are in the future tense, Israel prophets, wise men and scribes. And who were these prophets, wise men and scribes? We can glean some clues from what Jesus said would be done to them. According to Jesus some would be what, killed, others would be scourged in the synagogues and still others would be persecuted from city to city. Acts 5, 40 and 41 informs us that Peter and John were scourged in the synagogue. Saul of Tarsus was guilty of killing many, the most notable of which was Stephen. Noteworthy also is the fact that Saul of Tarsus later recounted that he persecuted many from city to city. Acts 6 verse 3 explains that the seven deacons were wise men. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost was a prophetic sermon, and his ability to read the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira also reveals that he possessed the prophetic gift. And we shall see shortly that Stephen was the last prophet who ever spoke. To literal Israel, so did Jesus fulfill his promise that he was going to send wise men, he was going to send prophets, and he was going to send messengers to speak even after his crucifixion. Yes, three and a half more years, Jesus did that. Jesus made it crystal clear in this passage that the cup of Israel's iniquity did not fill up until they reject the messenger, rejected the messengers which were sent by Jesus to them after His crucifixion. Only then was the blood of all of the martyrs demanded of that generation, according to verse 35. Now Matthew 22 1 through 10 also provides evidence that probation did not close for the Jewish nation when Jesus was crucified. In this parable after the oxen and fatted cattle had been killed, and what is represented by the killing of the animals? The death of whom? The death of Jesus. God sent out messengers to invite the Jews to His Son's wedding supper, but the messengers were ignored, seized, treated spitefully, and killed. As a result God sent out His armies to destroy those murderers and to burn their city. What event was that? The destruction of Jerusalem. The gospel then went to those in the highways and byways, an expression that is used to describe the Gentiles. Particularly important here is the fact that the Father sent out messengers to the Jewish nation even after the death of Jesus. It was only after the Jews rejected the calls of these messengers that the Father decided to destroy them and their city. Are you following along? Now in Ezekiel 11, 22 and 23 we find a picture of God's lingering mercy for Old Testament Jerusalem just before the Babylonian captivity. We took a look at this a while ago. Even though at this point Jerusalem had been judged and Nebuchadnezzar was on his way to destroy the city, we are told that the Shekinah left the temple and lingered on the Mount of Olives as if loath to leave. In the same way when Jesus left the temple and pronounced the awesome words behold your house is left unto you desolate, He did not want to leave. We can almost hear Him say, how can I give you up O Israel? Mercy lingered on for three and a half years. Notice that Ellen White caught this idea very clearly in the book Great Controversy page 28. It says there, through the preaching of the apostles and their associates, God would cause light to shine upon them, that is upon the Jews. They would be permitted to see how prophecy had been fulfilled, not only in the birth and life of Christ, but in His death and resurrection. The children were not condemned for the sins of the parents, but when, with a knowledge of all the light given to their parents, The children rejected the additional light granted to themselves, they became partakers of the parents sins and filled up the measure of their iniquity. Now let's talk about the ending date for the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Many have been perplexed by the apparent absence of a clearly defined ending event for the prophecy of the 70 weeks. But is such an event really missing in the prophecy of Daniel 9? You see in Daniel 9, if you read the prophecy of the 70 weeks, uh, it speaks about you know, the coming of the Messiah, the anointing of the Messiah, it speaks about what happens at the middle of the last week, but the prophecy doesn't seem to give an ending point. There, there's no event mentioned in the prophecy of the 70 weeks as an ending point for the 70 weeks we know that the ending point is the final ending point for the Jewish nation as God's nation to reach out to the world with the gospel. We know that the ending point means that probation is closed for the Jewish nation as God's instrument to take the gospel to the world, but there is no clear event in Daniel 9 to indicate what event marked that moment, apparently. Now let's continue here is such an event really missing in the prophecy of Daniel 9? Seventh-day Adventists have consistently believed that the stoning of Stephen marked the conclusion of the 70 weeks. But are we justified in believing this? I believe the biblical evidence fully vindicates the Adventist point of view. And why is this? A study of Daniel nine twenty-four indicates that six things would be accomplished during the time period of the 70 weeks. One of these was to seal up vision and prophecy. What does this expression mean to seal up vision and prophecy? Here comes the interesting detail. The same expression, to seal up, is used earlier in this verse and is translated to make an end of sins. So in other words, where it says to seal up vision and prophecy, the translation could be to end vision and prophecy, because it's the identical word. Why in the same verse is it translated in versions to seal up in one place and in the same verse later on it is translated to make an end, when it is the same Hebrew expression. It can be very well translated To make an end of vision and prophecy. In other words, one of the accomplishments of the 70 weeks was to bring prophecy and vision to an end for the Jewish nation. How and when did this happen? When did they receive the last prophetic vision? A careful examination of Acts 6 and 7 reveals that Stephen was the last prophet who was given a vision for the nation of Israel. Let's take a look at the evidence. In order to comprehend the significance of the events in Acts 6 and 7, we must first understand the covenant pattern in the Old Testament. Due principally to the studies of Old Testament scholars George Mendenhall and Meredith Klein, they are not Adventists by the way, We now know that God's covenant with Israel in the Old Testament follows the same basic pattern as the secular suzerainty treaties of the latter of the Late Bronze Age which is 1550 BC to 1200 BC. We will use Joshua 24 which describes the covenant renewal just before Israel entered the promised land to exemplify the basic components of the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel. These are the elements that covenants contained in the time when God made the covenant with Israel. Would you expect God to use the same method of covenant with Israel as with the surrounding nations? Of course, He wasn't going to talk to them in a different language, He would use the same basic structure as He used with the other nations. Now what do you have in this covenant structure? When a covenant was made, first of all you have the preamble or the introduction. Then it's very interesting that you have a historical prologue, in other words there's a telling of the historical events that God did for Israel, the history of Israel through the time of the conquest is portrayed in chapter 24 the last half of verse 2 through verse 13. And then you have the covenant stipulations, in other words the obligations of the covenant then you have the covenant blessings and curses, then you have an oath of obedience by Israel, then you have witnesses to the covenant, then you have a ceremony to ratify the covenant, and arrangements for the covenant to be preserved and perpetuated, and then the covenant is notarized. If you read Joshua 24 you're going to find all of those elements in the covenant. Now when Israel broke the covenant, God sent them prophets to bring legal proceedings against them. It is important to keep in mind that the prophets were God's lawyers bringing a covenant lawsuit against Israel. The the proceeding has come to be known as a covenant lawsuit, which in uh, Hebrew is rib. Though there are several examples of this in the Old Testament, we will take Micah 6 as our example. The word reap is there translated contend or controversy. So, so we need to understand you know Israel was unfaithful to God so God sends the prophets to sue Israel in court. <laughs> That's basically what you have. Now when Israel broke the covenant God sent them then prophets to carry on legal proceedings. Now let's notice the elements here that we find in Micah 6. First of all there's a call to the witnesses to give ear to the proceedings. I hope that you will read these chapters because this is just a summary. Then you have an introductory statement of the case at issue, the case that is being brought before the court. Then interestingly enough you have a recital of the Lord's benevolent acts. You have a reenactment or repetition of how good God was to Israel in history. Then you have the indictment and after the indictment you have the sentence. Now, as will be, you say, what does this have to do with Acts 7? You'll see. There's something very important here in Acts 7. As will be noticed above, the recital of God's benevolent acts towards Israel was fundamental both to the establishment of the covenant and to the covenant lawsuit. Did God recite the benevolent acts in both? Yes, he did. Something which has perplexed some Bible students is the inordinately long historical discourse which Stephen gave before the Sanhedrin. Did you notice in Acts 7 he tells the whole history of Israel and how God was so good to Israel. In other words, he's God's lawyer in court. The members of the Sanhedrin were the intelligentsia of Israel. Why would Stephen presumably waste his time and theirs with the history that they knew all too well. The answer lies in the fact that Stephen was God's prophet bringing God's covenant lawsuit against Israel and as we shall see below this would be God's final covenant lawsuit. There is an amazing parallel and this will be our final point between the trial of Christ and the trial of Stephen. Let's notice a few similarities. Both were taken before the Sanhedrin. Both were accused by false witnesses. Both reviewed the history of the Jewish nation. Both spoke about God sending the prophets and finally sending His own Son. In both money was paid as a bribe to false witnesses. Both were accused of speaking against Moses and the temple. Both accused the Jewish leaders of shutting their ears to the truth about the Messiah. Both prayed for God to forgive the sin of their enemies. Both were killed outside the city the innocence of both could be seen on their face, in both there was a mob mentality. The Jews are repeating with Stephen what they did with Christ. These parallels suggest that Stephen was repeating the experience of Jesus, that is to say what the Jewish leaders had done with Jesus they were now doing to Stephen. This was the last straw. Is this making sense? Well you can't miss the next exciting episode because our time is up. There are incredible evidences in the book of Acts to prove that the stoning of Stephen is the close of probation for the Jewish nation as God's instrument to carry the gospel to the world. Now God carries the gospel to the world through those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Israel is global and worldwide. And God's Israel is spiritual Israel through whom God will fulfill His promises to His people and through which God will finally fulfill prophecy as it appears in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And so we have a lot of exciting things still to study. In our next session we will finish this document and you'll find some amazing things and then we will go to our next prophetic principle, which will take us quite a long time. The last few are going to take us longer than the first ones. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse dot org.